You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. I think as believers, it's so important for us to know not only what we believe, but why we believe what we believe. People will say they believe in God, and that's great, and that's important. And it's also important to know, why, why do I believe in God? What do I believe about God? I've met people that say that they believe in God, they have an understanding about the God they believe in, and oftentimes as I hear them talk about that, I come to realize it's not, it's not based upon Scripture at all. Sometimes when I'm talking with people, they'll make a statement um, that comes up like, you know, I believe in God. And then when I ask them to describe or to talk about this belief that they have in God, it's nothing like the Bible reveals concerning the nature and the character of God. That is why the word of God is so important. Because it's one of the main ways that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. God also reveals himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the more we get to know about Jesus, the more we get to know about our Father God. Listen to what Paul wrote in Colossians 1.15 and then in verses 19 through 20. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That's who Jesus is. That's who we believe Jesus to be. Paul also goes on and says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live or to dwell in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. Again, that's a mouthful. I mean, you you could spend eternity just thinking and meditating on those words, those verses there, and never run out of revelation. My point is, any belief in God apart from his word, apart from his son, Jesus Christ, will ultimately lead us to deception and into false religion. So it's important, very important, for me as a pastor, for us as believers, for us as a community of believers, to know what we believe and why we believe what we believe and that it be based upon the word of God and based upon the testimony and life of his son, Jesus Christ, as well as the Holy Spirit, who is always leading us to the truth about the nature and the character of God and who Jesus is. I wanna continue in a series we've been kind of working our way through this year, kind of looking at the Old Testament book of Ezra. And one of the reasons why I'm doing this is because a lot of times there's just certain books of the Bible that we just largely don't talk about because we don't really maybe understand their relevance to where we maybe are today as a culture. And I want to look at um, how God was able to use this priest, this amazing scribe, and, and how God used Ezra to lead a nation 
of, the, of Israel towards repentance, towards restoration. Uh, he ultimately uh, is, is someone who sends them back uh, to the nation of Israel. They've been in exile there in Babylon for the last 70 years. And, and Ezra is one of those uh, individuals that God is using to equip the people to return back to the, the nation of Israel and to rebuild their nation and particularly the temple there in Jerusalem. As I said at the very beginning of this series, there are three Old Testament books that kind of relate to this period of time in history, and they are the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now what's interesting is the book of Esther has to do with those Jews who remained in Babylon. Those that returned were not all that were taken captive. There were many Jews that chose to remain there in Babylon for a number of reasons. And for some reason, the families of Mordecai uh, and Esther chose to remain there uh, in Babylon rather than make that four-month, treacherous, difficult journey uh, back to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, it's very apparent by this time that Mordecai has risen to very high places uh, in the government, uh, and he's certainly being used, as well as Esther, who became a queen, and she was able to kind of intervene in Haman's very evil plot to wipe out the Jewish people. And so God has reasons, and he has plans, and he has purposes for the way that he does things and the ways that he uses people to accomplish his plans and his purposes. That was true then. It's also true today. God has a plan and a purpose for every one of us in this room. And part of those plans and purposes of God is to further the work of his kingdom upon this earth. And just as there were people who recognized their place and their role in what God was calling them to do, the same is true with us. It's upon us to recognize and, and to accept what is God's plan? What is his purpose for my life? How is he using me to impact this culture and to further the work of his kingdom upon this earth? It's interesting that Ezra, Nehemiah, they're the books that have to do with the remnant of the people that, that chose to return to their homeland. And we, we looked at those families and you can see them listed there in Ezra chapter two. And they were the ones who were going to undertake the task of rebuilding the nation of Israel, rebuilding the, the walls that had fallen around Jerusalem and to restore the temple. And it's also interesting, the book of Daniel uh, also takes place during these 70 years of captivity. And again, it just kind of provides a glimpse into the challenges that the Jewish nation faced there in those 70 years of captivity in Babylon. What's also interesting is there's uh, many parts of the Old Testament that talk about what these 70 years uh, were like for the Jewish nation. I shared one in uh, prayer this morning that kind of talked about the joy they felt as they returned back to their homeland. Even though it's, it's in ruins, even though it's been destroyed, that as they make their journey back, as they get there, they talk about the joy that they experienced in just being back in their homeland. Again, there's many other places in the Old Testament that gives you a glimpse into what that captivity felt like. One such example is Psalm 137. 
It's a psalm obviously written by somebody who had been held captive there in Babylon. Listen to a few of these verses there from Psalm 137, beginning with verse 1. Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept as we thought of Jerusalem. As they're thinking of their homeland, they're sitting there by the banks in captivity and they wept. Said, we put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees, for our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to play the harp. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I fail to remember you, if I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. O Lord, remember what the Edomites did on the day the armies of Babylon captured Jerusalem. Destroy it, they yelled. Level it to the ground. O Babylon, you will be destroyed. Happy is the one who pays you back for what you have done to us. So you get a sense as they're, they're in captivity as they're thinking about their homeland, as the memories of Jerusalem come flooding back to them. And what they hear is they hear the taunts of their tormentors. I mean, it's one thing if you've, all of us have experienced what that feels like to be mocked. And here they are, part of that captivity is they're being mocked by those who took them captive. So you get this sense how the nation of Israel felt being taken captive and forced to live in a foreign land. The book of Ezra talks about the rebuilding of the temple, whereas Nehemiah refocuses on the rebuilding of the wall around the city of Jerusalem. In other words, Ezra talks about the work on the inside. Nehemiah is focused on the work on the outside. I think that's interesting because that's kind of the order in which God works also in our lives. Notice God always begins to work first on the inside before he begins to work on the outside. That's usually always God's order. What happens on the outside is always usually a reflection. It's an indicator many times of what is going on on the inside of us. So in order to bring renewal and restoration on the outward behaviors, oftentimes God will begin his work on the inside. And that's kind of the point Jesus is making there in Matthew 15 when he tells his disciples that it's not what goes inside of you that defiles you, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. And Jesus says in verse 18, but the words you speak come from the heart. They come from the inside. They're an indicator of what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, what you're thinking. He says, for from the heart, from the inside, he said, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. 
So oftentimes when God wants to begin to change us, to transform us, to renew us, to make us more and more into the image of Christ, when God calls us to repentance, when God saves us, he's always beginning first by doing a work on the inside. And then hopefully as that work on the inside continues, it begins to kind of emanate. It begins to manifest in, in the outwardness, in, our, in the way we speak, in the way that we treat other people. Religion does the exact opposite. Religion tries to change us on the outside and then hoping that that change on the outside will, will work inside. And it never does. That's why Jesus always said the greatest work that God's gonna do, it's always gonna begin on the inside and it's gonna work its way out. We left off last time at the end of chapter two and this morning I wanna kind of look at chapter three and I wanna kind of begin um, to help you begin to understand what all was involved in laying the foundation of the temple there in Jerusalem. And this morning, I kind of want to focus on, or at least start focusing on, the first of three very important words you'll find there in chapter 3. Because it's the same three words that God does whenever he is rebuilding and reviving and restoring uh, any kind of nation or people. And the three words found there in chapter three, they're worship, work, and witness. So let's just kind of start by looking at that first word there, worship. Revival, restoration, renewal always involves worship. You cannot have one without the other. So let's begin there at verse one. In the early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. Then Yeshua, son of Jehodazak, joined his fellow priest and Zerubbabel, the son of Shetel, with his family in rebuilding the altar of the God of Israel. They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. Then they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord each morning and evening. They celebrated the festival of shelters as prescribed in the law, sacrificing the number of burnt offerings specified for each day of the festival. They also offered the burnt offerings and the offerings required for the new moon celebrations and the annual festivals as prescribed by the Lord. The people also gave voluntary offerings to the Lord. Fifteen days before the shelter festival of shelters began, the priests had begun to sacrifice burnt offerings to the Lord. This was even before they had started to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. So before they ever began the work, you'll see that there was a lot of worship, a lot of consecration, a lot of offerings that are made and given there. And one of the benefits of revival, of restoration, is it always ushers God's people back into God-honoring worship. You can worship, but I think what God is calling us to and calling us to worship him in spirit and in truth is God is calling us to a place of God-honoring, God-inspired worship. And I think when people and nations, whenever they experience genuine revival, one of the first indicators 
of that is they inevitably return to the house of God and they begin to offer up praises and worship that are God-honoring and God-inspired. And it's why as we gather together, every time we gather together as a body of believers, worship is a part of what we do. It's a part of what we offer to God. One of the unfortunate trends going on in America today is so many people's names who are on the roll of churches seldom, if ever, attend. I remember one of the churches I was pastoring in the mainline denomination before I became the pastor here at Praise. I remember one of the churches had a membership role of 1,500 people. And yet their average weekly attendance was around 250 people. And I noticed over time, it was generally the same 250 people. And as I'm looking at the membership roles and I'm looking at the average attendance and getting to know the people that that average attendance represented, my mind kind of just started asking, where are all the others? I remember after a couple of years, I would meet people in the community and they would find out I was one of the pastors at that particular church and they would say, that's where I go to church. And, and I'd been, you know, pastoring there for a couple of years and I remember I would just kind of stand there and stare at them. I didn't recognize them. I did not know them at all. They were members but never attended. And I just remember how weird that kind of felt to me, how awkward that kind of felt. I didn't know what to say to them. Why would you belong to a church? Why would you want your name on the membership of a church and never attend? I believe when revival comes, I believe when God begins to move, to revive, and to restore his church, this nation, I believe people will flock back to the churches, and I believe we will begin to see some very, very God-inspired, God-honoring worship break forth. Let me also just make one very important uh, observation there we find in verse 1. All the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. When I read that, immediately the scripture in Acts chapter 2 verse 1 came to mind where it says that when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one place and all in one accord. Again, notice that connection there between Ezra chapter uh, 3 verse 1 and Acts chapter 2 verse 1. The people were unified. They were gathered together in one place, in one accord. As you read Ezra 3, you kind of find this same concept, this same value is reflected there in several other verses there in chapter 3. Verse 9 says, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God. You see it again in verse 11. It says, then all the people together gave a great shout, praising the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's temple has been laid. The people there in Ezra, there in chapter 3, they are unified. They are together in one place. They are together for one purpose. And there was tremendous unity in that place. I love what Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold how good 
and how pleasant it is for the brethren, the brothers and sisters, to gather together in unity. And there, and, and it's from that unity uh, that the psalm then goes on and says, and, and from there, the Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life everlasting. So God is able to do something. He's able to pronounce. He's able to bring forth. He's able to bestow his blessings upon a people, upon a congregation, upon a city, upon a nation, a state that is unified, that is gathered together in one accord for one purpose. And I thank God that this is really becoming one of our focuses here at Praise Community Church we want to be a people who are unified. We want to be a people who are in harmony with one another, that we can be in one place. We can be united by one spirit, one faith, one heart, that, that we're committed to that, that we're pursuing that, that we see our place in that, and that we're willing to do what needs to be done to build and to maintain unity in our body. And it doesn't mean that we're all gonna agree on everything, but we're gonna agree on the essentials and then we're gonna give grace and we're gonna, we're gonna be patient with one another in the non-essentials. We live in a very, very divided world right now. We live in a divided nation right now. And it is so easy for those divisions to come into the church, to come into the body of Christ. And therefore, we need to be aware, we need to be alert, we need to be watching, and we need to be working to make sure that those divisions are not working their way into our church, that we're able to stand together in one accord, and that we're united on one purpose, and that is to know God the Father to know his son, Jesus Christ, that he sent, and the Holy Spirit that he has sent to us. Um, those, are the, those are the essentials. Those are the things we want to remain focused on. The need for unity and harmony is so significant. It is so important. It is so crucial to God because I do not believe it is possible to have God-inspired, God-honoring worship in a divided house. As a matter of fact, Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 25. He said, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Sadly, again, we are living in a very divided and a very hostile nation and I believe spiritual revival is the only thing that will bring the healing our nation needs if we're to ever experience harmony and unity as a nation again. And part of that revival we need as a, as a nation, true God-honoring worship must be a part of that restoration. I don't know, I don't know about you, but I feel like I no longer live in the America I grew up in. It is so different, and, and it, it, it feels so caustic, and it feels like someone has stolen something very, very precious, and we don't know how to get that back. But I, I, I believe God knows 
how to revive, how to restore, how to, how to not bring that nation back to what I need it to be or what I remember it to be, but for God to be able to restore and to bring our nation back to what he needs, what he desires for us to be as a nation, as a people. And I believe worship is so important because one of the things it does is it, it has the ability to connect our heart to the heart of God and to the heart of one another. And that's what, that's what brings, that's what fosters, that's what increases unity is when my heart is united with his heart and my heart is united with your heart that one of the benefits, one of the byproducts of that is there's unity, there's harmony. Worship brings us in the very presence of God and it allows us to encounter his heart. And through that encounter, our hearts are, are being changed, are being transformed, are becoming more and more like his. Through worship, we begin to love the things that he loves, to hate the things that he hates. True worship has the ability to do that. I think it's interesting whenever you read in the Bible of the worship that takes place in heaven, all those who are worshiping are in complete, total unity and harmony with one another. There's no division in heaven. You don't have one part of heaven going this direction, the other part of heaven going in a completely opposite direction. They're all unified, they're all together, they're all crying out, they're all proclaiming the same thing. I think it's also very interesting to point out what it says there in the latter part of verse two. It tells us everything they did in rebuilding the altar there in Jerusalem was done as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now the law of Moses there, the man of God, that's referring to the first five books there of the Old Testament. That's telling us that their worship of God was guided, it was founded upon the teachings and the commands of the word of God. That's why it's so important to go back and to look at how did God work in the past because how God worked in the past is how he wants to work now. What God did then is what God wants to do now. That's telling us again, the genuine God-honoring worship, it must be based upon what the Bible says about worship. Not what we think it ought to be, not what we want it to be, but what does the word of God say regarding worship? That's what it should be. And that's what the people there in the book of Ezra, they based it upon that, they founded it upon that. What does God want? What does God call us to be? What does God call us to do? And we'll do it. That's obedience to the word of God. So if we're ever going to worship God in spirit and in truth, it must be based upon the word of God. Everything we do as, a, as individuals, as a community, it's got to be based upon the word of God. I want you to notice also in verse 2, it says one of the first things they, they rebuilt was the altar of God of Israel. It was the first thing that God called them to do in their worship is to restore the altar of God. Now you have to remember that, that as they return back to Jerusalem after having been gone for 70 years, they come back to complete and total ruin. Everything has been destroyed. 
And it says that they're in, in order to uh, restore, the first thing that God has them do is to rebuild the temple there uh, in Jerusalem. The altar of God there in the temple, uh, the reason why God had them start there was because that is the very heart, it is the very center of worship. The altar of burnt offering, as it was called there, it was the first place you came to as you approached the temple. If you've ever done a study on the temple, God had the temple constructed. He had it kind of arranged in a very, very specific way. And, and he was very clear about that in scripture. And so one of the first things that you would come to as you would approach the temple, the very heart of worship there, was the altar of, of burnt sacrifice. And it was there that, that animals would be sacrificed and they would be offered up to the Lord uh, uh, for the sins of the people. The, the, the animals would, would be substitutions in that they were taking the place of the people. Rather than the life and the blood of the people, God was willing to take the life and the blood of the animal as a temporary uh, sacrifice. So altars were very, very, very important in the Old Testament. You will find that on many occasions when people had significant uh, God encounters or there were victories or there were significant spiritual events in their lives, they would oftentimes commemorate, they would honor uh, those moments, those encounters with God by building an altar. I think of one time in Genesis 28 where Jacob uh, is traveling and, and he stops one night to rest and as he is sleeping, it says he's resting his head against a stone and, and he begins to have this dream about a staircase that goes from heaven to earth and he, and he sees the angels of God ascending and descending on that. And it indicated to, to Jacob that, that God was actively working upon the, the, uh, between the heaven and the earth. God was active in what he was doing upon the earth. And it says that as he awoke from that dream, it says he took the very stone that he was leaning his head against and it says that he began to pour oil on that and he began to consecrate that uh, to God. And he named that place Bethel, which meant the house of God. He encountered God in that very place and, and he commemorated that by, by anointing that stone, by recognizing the encounter he had had with God. And he said, this is Bethel and, and that meant house of God. And then Jacob makes this statement in verse 22 and he says, and this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place for worshiping God and I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. So again, you see this very, very important, crucial connection between worship and the altars uh, of God. You'll also find similar occurrences like this throughout the Old Testament. Altars are a very crucial part of worship. It represented consecration and commitment. It, it represented the activity uh, of God, his working upon the earth. So that begs the question, as, as believers on the other side of the cross, do we have an altar? Yes, we do. I want you to look at uh, Hebrews 13, and I want to show you what our altar is. Beginning with verse 10, it says, we have an altar. 
from which the priest and the tabernacle have no right to eat. Under the old system, the high priest brought the blood of animals into the holy place as a sacrifice for sin. And the bodies of the animals were burned outside the camp. So also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. So let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the disgrace he bore. For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. We have an altar, and our altar is the Lord Jesus Christ. And his death upon the cross, his sacrifice there at Calvary is the perfect, it is the complete and final sacrifice. The Bible says was made once for all. Jesus did what he did one time for every one of you and I. Again, we find the unbreakable link between the altar and worship there in the book of Hebrews Jesus is our ultimate, our complete, our final altar. When revival comes, when restoration comes, I believe that God will begin and continue to bring people to Jesus more and more and more. We will see revival and where people will, beginning, will, will uh, begin to just seek out uh, Jesus. They will seek out churches. They will seek out believers. They'll do whatever they have to do to be able to find uh, Jesus. And I believe, again, worship will be an, uh, a vital part uh, of helping people to, to come to God and to be able uh, to enter into relationship with him. Again, it's why I think it's so important that we offer communion Again, it, it is communion. It, it's, it's coming into unity. It's coming into community with, with Jesus. And so again, it's why we want to offer that uh, every week, every time we gather, because he is our altar. And it's there that we can be reminded of all of the blessings that we receive through his broken body and his shed blood. That's part of that examination. What does the body represent what, what does God want to do with that broken body for me? What does the shed blood of Jesus mean? What does God, how does God want to use that in my life? What sins in my life need to be cleansed, need to be forgiven? And so all of that is a part of communion. All of that is a part of that examination. It's a part of our, our worship. It's rightly divining. It's, it's rightly discerning the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ I talked about earlier. His body was broken. His blood was shed for our healing, my, our body, mind, soul, spirit. And his blood was shed because it has the power to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not only did they rebuild the altar, but they offered the burnt sacrifice. Um, I'm going to probably just pick this up here because I'm, I'm about ready to segue. I want to talk about the significance of the offerings next week. Um, so I'll kind of just give you a little bit of a, a preview there. 
Um, it says there in the third verse, even though the people were afraid of the residents. I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna talk about that because oftentimes there's great fear among God's people. And, and, and we see that fear today. There was fear about rebuilding uh, the altars. There was fear among the people as, as God was wanting to revive and to restore the nation. There was fear among the people of those who were outside the nation of Israel. People who had settled there in, that, in those uh, lands of, of desolation, people that had, had moved in and kind of taken over after the nation of Israel was removed, people kind of went in and they started taking over the lands and, and the places and the properties. And as the nation of Israel goes back and, and they encounter uh, these strangers, um, these, these foreigners, it says that they began to have great fear as they kind of began to restore uh, the nation of, of uh, Israel. Uh, and, and as God was reviving them, they encounter these people and there's great fear. And, and some of us know that, that fear that, that we can be given to as we're trying to work to restore, as, as we're wanting God to use us to revive our nation. There, there's going to be times we're going to fear people. We're going to fear the opposition. We're going to fear those that are going to try to maybe come against us um, in, in, as we're attempting uh, to do the work of God, and, and there's some things that the people did there, and I wanna uh, kind of talk about that, and one of the things is as they're rebuilding that altar, uh, as they're kind of beginning to offer certain sacrifices, there were five sacrifices that they offered there uh, in the Old Testament. They're the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And again, these are very, very powerful um, offerings and they were all for a very specific purpose in what God was doing there in the nation. And so as I, I kind of want to pick up on that um, there uh, next week. So again, I, I just, uh, just want to encourage you uh, this morning, um, just be praying um, for um, just unity, uh, harmony, that God would just continue uh, to build us, to, God would continue to unite us. Uh, you know, again, just as, as the scripture says, that, that one spirit, the Holy Spirit, that we would be unified in one heart, in one faith, um, one common purpose. Uh, and, and so just continue to pray that God would increase and just bring greater and greater unity and harmony amongst our body. Uh, and the other thing is just that we would continue uh, and, and just really grow and deepen in our ability to worship God, to really be able to offer God um, God-honoring worship in this place. And I don't believe that that is uh, dependent on the people up here on the platform. We're thankful for them. We give thanks to God for their gifts, their abilities, their willingness to come here. But it is not dependent on them. It is dependent on us, that we're coming uh, each time as we gather together and we're positioning our hearts, that, that we're, we're positioning our hearts uh, to be able to offer to God worship that is 
honoring to him. And, and that is something that we need to be praying for as a congregation, that we can have greater breakthroughs. I'd love to see greater breakthrough every Sunday morning, that we're going deeper and deeper uh, in our worship of God. And that in that, it, it, it's that God is going to be using that to just change and to transform us as we go out and, and bring transformation uh, into our city, into our uh, county, and even into our state. So those are the two areas this morning I just want to just, again, uh, reiterate uh, the importance of is the unity and, and the worship, because I believe that God is going to work and use those as he's bringing revival uh, to uh, our city, to our county, our state, and our nation. Amen? Let's stand together this morning. Father, we just thank you so much. The Lord, you have created us. You made us intentionally by design, God, to be able to worship you. And yet, God, oftentimes uh, a myriad of things, sin, distractions, things just get in the way that, that it blocks our ability to be able to worship you in, in the way that you desire to be worshiped. And God, I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to just break through any of those barriers, that you would help us to break through as a congregation any of those distractions. That God, this morning, that, that you would give us a heart that desires to worship you in spirit and in truth. Worship that would connect our hearts to your heart. Worship that would connect our hearts to one another. And in that connection, God, that there would just again come forth unity and harmony. That we would be able to be in one accord as a congregation. And Father, again, we just recognize that from your perspective, God, how pleasant, how good, how beautiful it is to you, God, when you see the brothers, when you see the body of Christ in unity. And so God, we wanna, we wanna be a pleasing sight to you as a congregation. So Father, I pray, Lord, that you would, would work that into us through worship. Father, we also just again, Father, I, I just uh, thank you Lord, for what all we're learning here through the book of Ezra. There's so much more than I'll ever have time to go into. And God, we just thank you, Lord, for, again, those, those insights, Father, that you have given to us, Lord. And Father, we pray, Lord, that, that uh, again, as we talked about this morning, that, that we have an altar this morning in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I thank you for the people that, that know and, and, and uh, that, that altar is a reality. And yet, Father, I pray for those this morning that that, that altar uh, of Jesus this morning that may not be a reality. And that, Lord, this morning that there would be people who would come to see how much you love them. And Father, how that love that, that you have for them, Lord, it, it was manifested, it was made known by sending your son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death on the cross. He rose again from the dead as a testimony that he was indeed the son of God, that he had conquered sin and death, and that he ascended at the right hand of the Father. And there he is, and he's, he's making intercession. He's praying for us. And Father, I pray that that reality, that altar, of Jesus 
would come to those that don't know him this morning. That God, through repentance this morning, God, through an acknowledgement of, of our sinfulness, God, that as we turn from that, as we confess that to you, your word says you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we make Jesus Christ the altar, the center of our life, that God, when we make him and, and put him in the position of Lord and Savior, the Father, your word says you are faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, I pray that that is an altar every one of us will leave here with this morning. And Father, again, we just thank you so much for your presence here this morning, Father. And I pray, Lord, that you'll continue to lead us, to guide us, and just to build us up in your holy word. And all of God's people said, amen. What we want to do this morning is uh, we're going to just take a really quick break. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.